Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape during week 79 of quarantine from my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the smog-shrouded urban sprawl of Hollywood. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a comedian, writer, and celebrated animated TV psychiatrist, the creator and star of Dr. Katz Professional Therapist, returning live with an all-star cast of patients this Sunday, November 15th, exclusively on the Rush Ticks Virtual Comedy Club platform. Hello and welcome, Jonathan Katz. Thank you. My, I, I am one of the two creators of the show, by the way. Along yeah. with, uh, I don't know how to say it, Lauren Bouchard? Tom Snyder. Oh, that's absolutely right. Now, I was always confused. Let me ask you about that right off the bat. I knew Tom Snyder to be the guy who was on after David Letterman, who I gathered had a storied broadcasting career before that. Different Tom Snyder. Yes. This Tom Snyder had a, was, had a very successful educational software company in, in, Cam in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, where he sold only to schools and they're still they're still actually in business he's not part of it anymore and that was called tom snyder productions and then one day he discovered that he uh he discovered my comedy in a movie called things change and we didn't live far away from each other he's in cambridge i'm in newton massachusetts and oh god i've told this story so many times give me the strength no um so <laughs> So, uh, give me the quick and dirty version. Okay, so we got together and started working on a number of projects, and mm -hmm. the one that took is Dr. Katz. And what was the dynamic of your relationship? He's a software guy, you're a comedy guy. How do you collaborate on making projects? What do you each bring to the table? I brought my comedy and the comedy of many, many of our, my patients who were friends of mine from the world. I did stand-up for 15 years before I met Tom. Yeah, sure. And I was I was trapped in a one-man show, which I hated. I wasn't I was not enjoying the show. The audience liked it, but I I did not until one day I discovered I too can enjoy my show. Um, and that was a great day. By not doing the same act over and over and over, which has to become sort of rote at a certain point. Yeah, and also by engaging the audience, you know, which I I was afraid of for many years. And then one day I realized if I wrote down on little cue cards the the things with which they can heckle me, I, I wrote down three heckles, which I permitted, and I gave them out before the show. So I knew what they were going to say, and I had a comeback prepared. Yeah, if only worked, life worked that way. Yeah, it worked beautifully until one day I was in Florida, and they club was owned by a Marine and he was not, he was not aware of what I was doing. So he threw the guys out on the street. Oh, no way. Yeah. Oh, that was, that was, uh, that was talent approved heckling. Yes. <laughs> I see. So you've been doing Dr. Catch. You did it for a long time. You've done it on and off since then. Do you get nervous about getting back into character about delivering the Dr. Katz thing in a one night only event like you're doing this Sunday? Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> do you have a method for say, for dealing with I would that? I say terrified. Okay. Uh, and my method for dealing with it is being prepared, which is something um, my manager and my wife are very good at. They they big on preparation, and um, you know, one of the comedians I had not I'd spoken to every comedian last night except Paul F. Tompkins. And he called me last time. He said, uh, Jonathan, this is Paul F. Tompkins. And I said to him, God, you said that with such certainty. And we were off and running because I, I forgot how much, how funny he is and how much he likes my comedy. So I'm just nervous about the logistics of it now, the te- all the technology involved because it's stream- being streamed from the West Coast. I live on the East Coast. And some most of my patients are on the West Coast, but you know, it just makes me nervous. Yeah, Rush Ticks has been at this for a while now. I think they yeah. they ironed out the kinks a few months ago. I, I imagine you'll be fine. Um, in uh, I did a little bit of uh, prep for this interview, as I want to, from time to time, and I saw in other interviews you differentiate between the the performing you and the the private you that you reserve for your family and friends. Is that to say that this is actually the more flamboyant side of you, Jonathan Katz? Oh, man. That, that would be pathetic. <laughs> I, I mean, I, there's not a whole lot of distinction between the character I portray and the person I am, um, except with my family, with my daughters, with my wife, and with my two grandchildren who live in Philadelphia. That's one of the hardest things for us because... We can't really go to Philadelphia now. Yes. Yeah, we also have the same situation. Well, I have family on the the East Coast, and I'm here on the West Coast, and we're definitely, uh, you know, mixed feelings about having a Zoom Thanksgiving. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, New Jersey, right outside of New York City. Right. I'm not even going to say what exit, because that's the, that's the hacky version of what, what, ta- what, what town did you grow up in? I grew up in uh, Rutherford, New Jersey, which is just beside, just west of East Rutherford, which is where Giant Stadium and all of that is, and, and 16W, it's fine. I wish you had said T-neck, because I have a whole bunch of T-neck jokes. Oh. <laughs> That's comedians work, but... There's a, there's a lot of town names in New Jersey, northern New Jersey, that lend themselves to, to comedy. A lot of the, the leftover Native American names, the Weehawken, the Parsippanies, the Whippanies, oh. the T-necks. Oh, is that an Indian name, Tinek? It has to be. I would assume so. I mean, we we have towns like that in Massachusetts, like of course, um, like the word Ma- doesn't sound Dutch. Like the word Massachusetts, I'm guessing. In all likelihood, in all likelihood. Um, my my research for this interview also uncovered one of the sadder things. I, I'd have to say that I recently have come across, and it involves your childhood, and it involves in a tangential way, the Dr. Katz TV show, um, a childhood meal or snack, I'm not sure which one it is, called Clown? Yes. My mom actually made that for us. Mm-hmm. And what was that? It was a piece of American cheese and then two pieces of tomatoes for the eyes, maybe a carrot for the nose, and celery for the mouth. And that was a that was a happy day when you got that. Yeah, and it didn't have to do with the fact that she wasn't an imaginative cook. It had to do with the fact that we were poor. Um, my parents both struggled to make a living. 
and my father was ripped off by my father was in the I forgot about this he made um, ashtrays he was in part he had a, he had a wood a, a a company that made ashtrays and some other wood product I can't remember what it was but he was ripped off by his partner oh my goodness yeah wouldn't wooden ashtrays seem like a somewhat flawed concept to begin with because <laughs> they're flammable <laughs> Is that what you mean? <laughs> that is what I mean, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. It's better than making them out of dried tobacco, but not only <laughs> by so much. Um, I, I know you've talked about this 10 million times. The one thing that I wanted to ask you about your lifelong friendship with David Mamet, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't even know if I'm supposed to be saying Mamet or Mamet. It's pronounced Mamet. It is, okay, so I have that right. Now, I've never been really clever enough to fully get all of his work, but I... I I do understand that you and he, at one point before he took off and your career took off, took a stab at writing a sitcom together. Smashville. Okay, please tell me about the sitcom that you attempted to co-create with David Mann. It was the 60s. I was working in a a recording studio in Soho. Mm -hmm. Um, And he would hang out there. And the only way I could really make any money there was if if David would open up the, the soda machine after hours and we would take the change out of there so we could go out to dinner um we were both quite broke he was sleeping on my on the floor of my apartment um but he knew how to write things he wrote a play when we were in college we went to Goddard college together mm-hmm. and he wrote a play called camel which has never been produced commercially but it was produced in, in our college and he charges students 50 cents to get into the show and they thought that was outrageous to pay to see a college production. But he wanted to pay the actors. Um, he, had a very, he had a really strong professional ethic about theater, which has served him well. It obviously has. It's interesting to think what might have happened had your sitcom taken off. I think everybody in show business, or most people anyway, had, there's some flukes along the way. I think of John Ritter, for example, was was one of Peter Bogdanovich's guys and was going to be in Bogdanovich movies. And then he said, oh, I just got this one tryout for this show where I play a gay panic thing where I'm constantly falling over the back of couches. Don't worry, it'll never go anywhere. And because of the success of Three's Company, John Ritter had a great career in his own right, but was never the dramatic guy that he might have been. We might have thought of him totally differently if Three's Company hadn't been picked up. You and David Mamet could have been, you know, the sitcom team of the 70s. Yeah, and it, the show was packaged by Dick Clark. Oh, no kidding. Because it involved music, and he saw an opportunity there. And uh, when we met, David and I had a meeting with Dick Clark, and Dick Clark said something incredibly insulting to David, and David said, none taken. That's his response of being insulted. <laughs> Do you recall what Dick Clark said? No, just something. Um, um, oh, I think I think David, he said to David, um, you know, your accomplishments in the theater are amazing, but the theater is basically like a flea up an elephant's asshole. And David said, none taken. Wow. Yeah. From America's perennial teenager or whatever we were supposed to believe Dick Clark was. No, I had just forgotten all about that experience. That's that's incredible. Because yeah. people think of the Dick Clark that, you know, most of us 
our only exposure to him was the guy on TV, but he was an incredibly successful TV executive, and presumably he was not the same guy in the boardroom that he was in front of the camera. Right. So I know you you know, started off as a musician, and I know that you obviously became a comedian, and I know in the middle you were Robin Williams' musical director on a tour. I assume that that is the bridge in your life from music to comedy? Uh, I'm not so sure that's true. Um, I got that gig with Robin Williams because his wife, um, Valerie Velarde, his first wife, was a girlfriend of mine at Goddard College where I met David and, and Valerie. And she sent him some of my songs, including Born to be Punished and This Heart is Closed for Alterations. And he performed them. He performed them on his tour of reality. What a concept. Um, and he was so unbelievably hot at the time from Mork and Mindy. And what I remember about I was... Once again, I was a nervous guy because I had to sit on this, uh, like a bar stool, every night to play the guitar, and I was so worried that I was going to be—I was going to be so sweaty I was going to fall off the stool, which never happened. But I just played acoustic guitar, and it was—and I also the opening—the opening act was wonderful. They were really inspirational, an act called Rick and Ruby. Um, which I think you'd have to do a lot of research to find them. And they just, do you need the Heimlich? I think I'm going to be okay. I think I'm going to pull through. I appreciate your concern though. Because there's a, there's a comedian named Tom Agna who used to do a great joke about living in the town where Heimlich was a town doctor. <laughs> so if you had like an, an infection of your eye, he'd give you yeah. the Heimlich, you know? Um, One size fits all. Yeah. Yeah, no, I swallowed a bit of my own saliva. I, I, I like to believe I'd like to believe I'm gonna pull through. <laughs> You'd like to believe it was on your own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or else I'm gonna have some uh, some questions to answer around here. Um, did you do any research whatsoever before becoming a TV psychiatrist, a TV therapist? Did you even read a book about what a pro might actually do in that situation to inform your comic take on it? I, I, first of all, I was in therapy many, many times before. Oh, the, I see. And also I had a friend at, in Newton, Massachusetts, where I live. It has the highest per capita number of shrinks of any city in the country. And one of them is a good friend of mine named Randy Glassman, who's a an award-winning psychiatrist. I don't know what that means. Um, but she and her husband are both shrinks. And she would give me the language I would need, need to to talk to my patients, things like intrusive thoughts. Mm -hmm. Have you been in therapy, by the way? No, I haven't, but it's, well, okay, that's not exactly true. I've seen two therapists for maybe about three sessions each, once in college and once a few years ago. And it's funny because I would say, I didn't realize it at the time and I was not diagnosed at the time, but Maria Bamford, successfully kind of got me to realize that it, it the second time at least it was first time was garden variety teen angst uh depression kind Ooh. of stuff but the second time was um a sort of anxiety driven intrusive thought and i didn't realize how common it was to yeah. be walking down the street and to want to punch a stranger and then to be horrified at the thought that you wanted to punch a stranger because you had this drive to do something that you didn't actually want to do yeah but apparently that's that's a big portion of the pop that's half the people in newton massachusetts apparently I've never had that desire. Yeah. <laughs> now I feel weird again. 
It's just the 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 desire to do something. It, it it becomes fetishized because it would be the most wrong thing you could possibly do. Yeah. That you're it's 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 very similar to and I, and I have that feeling of when you're near a cliff, this feeling that you need to stop yourself from jumping off of it, which many people experience, even though you don't care to do that. I think that I think the most I'm going to use the word antisocial mm-hmm. thing I ever did was two years ago. They had these little picture frames you could buy at Walgreens or CVS and it permitted you to re- record like maybe 20 seconds of audio. Have yes. you seen? So I re- found a frame which had a picture of a, of a young boy and I recorded, help! <laughs> and I put it in a mailbox and that, that was the most antisocial thing I've ever done. That is, uh, I think I am not a professional, but there's probably a stronger clinical word for that than merely antisocial (laughs) (laughs) pathological comes to mind yeah i I think i'm a pretty healthy guy in terms of my mind so why do you think i'm so fascinated by people like yourself and i don't mean to make you feel bad or uncomfortable because you're there are millions and millions like you as you well know but why do you think you've been in therapy so much you strike me as an okay guy well, I was in therapy the first time when I was in college because, oh, no, actually, the first time it was summer camp because I had to leave camp because I was afraid of flying insects. I went to camp in, in another part of Massachusetts, and I, every time I was playing left field and there was a bug out there, a particular kind of bug, I would run off the field, and this happened so often that the director of the camp thought I should leave camp and see a psychiatrist who thought that perhaps I was afraid of flying incest, which, Oh yeah. And that's, that's got, that was truly a hacky comedian. I mean, a hacky shrink. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> because that's ridiculous. That can't even happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my sister can't fly. No, 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 no. Say a lot of things about your sister, but yeah. she is earthbound. <laughs> Do you have any siblings? Yeah, uh, I have one older sister. Yes, I do. Oh, two me, years older. She, she, mine is two and a half years older. Mine is 18, 20, 20 months. Yeah, and when my sister was old enough, when she could speak, she asked my parents for a hitting stick, a stick with which she could hit her little brother, and they gave it to her. And that beca- became the legendary story of the hitting stick. Of- yeah. In my family. Were you able to also, like, did they weaponize you as well, at least to make it a level playing field? No, I was just a little, I was a young lad. You know, I but could, when you grew up a bit, were you able to get your hands on a blade of some sort? I once threatened her with a, with a letter opener. I threw a pair of scissors at my sister, and it wasn't retaliation. She'd pushed me and knocked me over, and I reached for the nearest solid object, and it ended up being a pretty big pair of metal scissors, and I whipped them across the room, and they, they went into her leg, and I remember as soon as I, oh. I saw the blood before she did, and she's like, oh, dude, that hurt. That hurt. Why'd you do that? And I'm like trying to calm her down because I know how she's going to react, and we were getting ready for church. She had stockings on. It ripped the stockings. It was horrible. I think about this sometimes. Now, you have children. I, me and my sister routinely wrestled, fought. It was odd. It was rare that we drew blood, but I can recall because she was older and bigger than me. And I remember 
I started to close the gap and we became more of uh, equal combatants. And I remember the one time I convincingly beat her and she saw the writing on the wall and she said, I don't think we should fight anymore. Like she'd finally had this breakthrough in regard to physical violence. But it's funny how things change. I would be appalled. I have an an eight-year-old and a two-year-old, so that's not a fair fight, but I, it would seem very odd to me if they were to be in fisticuffs with one another, despite the fact that my sister and I were routinely. That's something we've sort of moved past, haven't we? Yeah, I think so. Um, that story was one of the least Jewish stories I've ever heard. Because, was it the church thing or the scissors? No, the church. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what... Why was she, why were you so angry at her, or why was she so angry at you? I do I do not recall. I think it seemed completely natural to us that there there ought to be sibling rivalry. And my parents are far from violent people. My father is deaf. My father was in the military and still would I would say has never um, he's certainly never thrown a punch in anger or anything like that. We were frustrated at one another, and it was seemed like a natural and was a totally permissible thing at that time for us to settle that by wrestling it out. Did you flirt with her friends? Certainly. Did, did I flirt with her friends? I was attracted to her friends, but they didn't even see me. You know, when she's a cheerleader and I'm, you know, and I'm in eighth grade or something like that. And then I went to, she went to high school in the town that I grew up in, in Rutherford, New Jersey. I went to high school in New York City. I commuted in. So in the age where I might have really been interested in doing that, she and I were kind of leading separate lives. Where did you go to high school in New York? I went to Regis High School on the Upper East Side. Oh, geez, I think I may have walked by your school. I lived on 90th and Lex and, yeah, sure. and also 80th and Columbus. But the, right, right. But the Upper East Side, you said, right? Yeah, I was on the Upper East Side. I get off at the 86th and Lexington stop. I'm proud to say Regis High School, the alma mater of Tony Fauci. <laughs> that is something to be proud of. I thought that uh, the squiggle vision format, I thought that flattered you. I didn't always think that about all of the comedians. Was ever, was anyone ever disappointed by their depiction in squiggle vision or just the, the, the animation style of Dr. Katz? I don't think the people on this show are ever disappointed. I think um, Tom Stennis said that for every um, 10 people who like it, there are 12 people who don't mind it very much. <laughs> well, I enjoyed it. Well, I think it, you know, I think actually it had the ability to cause an epileptic person to have a seizure. All that squiggling, but we didn't do any. Um, we assumed no responsibility. The, the America had to sign a waiver. Oh, we all knew what we were going into when we watched a dangerous show like Dr. Katz, Professional Therapist. Yeah. You took your life into your own hands, obviously. Yeah. And and you mentioned the style of the way you recorded the audio. Correct me if I'm wrong. I I don't recall an animated show before that that had that improv style in an animated show. And now there's that that is an entire genre unto itself. On top of the stuff that John Benjamin does, um, the Metalocalypse show leans so heavily on that. I mean, the floor is yours if you'd like to take a little victory lap for inventing well, that. One one of the things that our show, I, I don't know if it coincided as much as it was made possible by the uh, arrival of digital audio editing. So the show was edited for every every 22 minute show, there was maybe 40 hours of audio editing done by guys much younger than me. Um, That's a young man's game. Yeah. And 
that's one of the reasons the show was was sounded so tight and yet so loose. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I get it. It's tight where it needs to be, but it breathes. It's like a it's like a good jazz solo. It breathes where it needs to. Right. The show ran in Turkey, I gather. Obviously. Okay. Obvious <laughs> no. obvious to some, perhaps not to me. Why there and what feedback over the years, if any, have you gotten from the Turks? I had no idea it ran in Turkey. I, I yeah. know it, I know it was in, in um parts of China and I know it ran in it aired in Puerto Rico because my I have family there and also in Israel it was it ran for quite a while. And in England. That would have been very impressive to your Puerto Rican family. Yeah. Except when I said, there was an episode where I said, uh, it was at the bar with my friend Stanley. Sure. And I said, um, uh, ¿Cómo se dice Stanley in, in Espanol? I was sort of making fun of the language a little bit. Or I said, uh, ¿Dónde está Beril? Who is my nephew. And the joke the joke was that you were speaking Spanish improperly, but they just played it as is in Puerto Rico. Which I was is- speaking it properly. Mm-hmm. But the fact that I was showing off that I could say, where's Beril in Spanish? Uh-huh. I was fishing around on your website a little bit, and I, I see that you were you were right there on the ground floor of, of podcasting. I saw that you did an episode where you're talking about a controversial Supreme Court nominee. And then I had to refresh my memory who Harriet Myers is. Right. And she she thought it was pronounced Supreme Court. Oh, my and, goodness. Um. And she didn't know the number of, she was confusing the number of justices with, with the size of the jury. She was very, incredibly unqualified. And that was created using the magic of audio editing, and that was done by Tom Snyder. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, you, you called 411 at the start of the episode. I didn't realize I was listening to something that was 13 years old, and I'm thinking, I, I honestly don't know if 411 still exists. Oh, yeah, it does. I don't know. Does it? Have you called recently? No, but what what response did I get? Well, I don't recall. I mean, obviously, you you called and you did put the operator in your podcast. I'm I'm sure you got the proper waivers from the four one one people on that. Yeah, um, yeah, that goes without saying. I think I once called four one one and I asked for the number for directory assistance. <laughs> you did not. So I did. That totally baffled her. Mm-hmm. She said, "Well, well, sir, that's that's my number," and I said, "Well." Let me call you right back. Ah, <laughs> now you're through the looking glass. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that was fun. I had so much fun to, and I still occasionally revisit that show called Hate mm-hmm. Back because um, it's fun to do. You know, it's whatever strikes me as funny that particular day, I can record. Yeah. You have an excellent demeanor for, for, driving around in your car listening to somebody babble about something. I, I, I do think that there is a, a place for you in that sphere. Thank you. Uh, but in the meantime, um, I, I have to let you go, but I wanted to talk to you about this Dr. Katz Live, which you're doing. Uh, Laura Silverman is back on this. Now, this is a deep um, Dr. Katz cut, but she was easily the most enigmatic character on the show. She was too cool for the job that she had. She was basically a walking, talking eye roll. And I think the nature of um, uh, her mystery was that we knew she didn't want to be there. 
And so I kind of wondered where she did want to be. In your mind, did you have a character biography of what the Laura character got up to when she wasn't sitting behind a desk in Dr. Katz's office? No. All right. She was just so perfect for the role. Amazing. And she also was was John Benjamin's girlfriend for a large part of the show. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And when things with them became strained, strained, it actually helped the show because they didn't really like each other on the show that much. Or she did not like him. That's right. That's right. Yeah. He was a puppy dog to her, but that just fed into the natural antagonism of her, of their relationship. Well, obviously they patched that up. They're both, uh, uh, heard together all the time on, on Bob's burgers. Why have we not heard you more on Bob's burgers? Write your congressman. I will. I will. Or complain to Lauren Bouchard. I, I will. Well, I, I find the, the federal government to actually be very responsive to my personal needs. So I'll, I'll start there and then work my way down to, to Lauren from there. Um, I'm, I'm going to let you go. It's been such a pleasure to get to talk to you a little bit. Please tell everybody a little bit more about Dr. Katz Live, which is happening this Sunday on Rush Ticks. Right, and you can go to RushTix.com, which is spelled R-U-S-H-T-I-X.com, and you can buy a ticket well, I'm, I'm glad you're doing that, and I'm sure it's going to be great. Yeah, and I'm, the ticket, I mean a link, because I, yeah. live, I too live in the future. That's right, that's right. There probably won't be any paper passes to this, but it'll be it'll be fun nonetheless, and I'm so happy that the Dr. Katz character endures. Thank you so much for your well, time. Thank you for, for your hospitality. Absolutely. <laughs> Lovely speaking okay. to you. Bye-bye. That was Jonathan Katz, star of the seminal Comedy Central series, Dr. Katz. Up next, a man who can take credit for starting Comedy Central, the author of Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor, Art Bell. Up next on The Tully Show. Welcome back to The Tully Show. In the last segment, I was talking to Jonathan Katz, who will be bringing Dr. Katz back for one night only this Sunday at the Rush Ticks Virtual Comedy Club. Joining me next, a man without whom there could have been no Dr. Katz because there would have been no Comedy Central in the first place. Joining me now, the creator of the Comedy Channel, as it was known in those days, and author of the memoir, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. Hello and welcome, Art Bell. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. The story that gets your story in motion in the book, if it was in a movie, it would be too good to be true. It's the fantasy that everybody who's ever worked in a cubicle, particularly in in the creative business, has, where you have this idea and you actually, and I know there were some missteps at first, but you get in front of the big boss and you pitch the big idea and they go, yes, guy from the business side, let's make this TV channel that you're telling me about. That really happened. Yeah, it really happened. Listen, everything in the book really happened. Um, it's uh, it's a memoir, and it's all it was all uh, true. True. I did get in front of Michael Fuchs, who was the chairman of HBO. It took me a long time. It was completely random. I had no presentation materials. I didn't prepare, and I pitched it to him in like sixty seconds with a lot of passion. I think that helped, and uh, he said, "Yeah, we should try this." So it's interesting because you you obviously had a passion for comedy as a as a person and i guess you're that person who you go well i i maybe don't believe in it enough or have enough faith in myself to go into that line of work and as a result when you get to flip over from the business side to the creative side you actually found the line of work that you should have been in in the first place working around comedy well that that is one way to look at it i will say that getting into the comedy business at that point like that so suddenly 
where I was suddenly, you know, vice president of programming for comedy for this new channel. I had not been in the comedy business. I was teamed up with people who had been in the comedy business for 15 years. And they're and very really territorial. Very territorial. You know, listen, I can understand that. As they should be. Yeah, no, I, I was just this new kid who showed up, as one guy said, oh, there's the guy with the big idea, Art Bell. You know, because I, I dragged these people into this idea. They ultimately got in step with it. But, you know, they really had no idea how I got that idea to the point where HBO was going to launch it. I love that prior to that, you'd been at HBO and you mentioned that a lot of families were canceling HBO because they were uncomfortable with all of the sex and violence. My I, my parents caught my sister and I, I'm going to say she was five and I was three watching Porky's. And I'm well, going to say it was maybe the 11th time she and I had watched Porky's together. And, so we were without HBO and, for years. And the rest is history, I might say. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Didn't that yeah. inspire your whole life? I, I, I owe a lot to Porky's. You know, it's funny. Um, yes. HBO did launch um, a service called Festival, which was a paid TV service for people who thought HBO had too much sex, violence and bad language. Mm -hmm. And uh, the funny thing was selling an entertainment product by saying it has no sex, violence or bad language isn't really likely to work out very well. And in fact, it didn't. It was a failed channel. For them. Yeah, there's a reason why. Christian rock remains a niche industry after all these years. Exactly, exactly right. So the original vision for the comedy channel that you pitched and that you were developing and that you were just about ready to bring on air was thwarted at the last minute by a director, a movie director who may well have been Woody Allen. Yeah, I, again, that's unverified. Sure. And, I, and but what happened is we we were going to use short form programming, a lot of which was going to come from movies and television. Uh, where we clip out, you know, some funny scene. And that was, we, we tested it, it worked great. And we had to get the um, approval of the unions, the Directors Guild, the Writers Guild, and they all gave their approval. They loved it. We made a billion clips. We were all ready for launch. Eight weeks before we launched, we got a call from the Directors Guild saying, you know what, board meeting, somebody changed their mind. It was a director of movies who's prominent, and so we can't let you go ahead with this. So you can imagine my disappointment, first of all, that I was going to launch this channel in eight weeks and we had absolutely no programming. Secondly, the, the rumor was that it was Woody Allen who said no, which in retrospect makes a lot of sense. But again, completely unverified. And I was crushed because here we were launching a network about comedy. How could, how could the Woodman shut that down? <laughs> but that's effectively what he tried to do. Sure. And I guess I can see from their point of view to to take a bit of a movie and to remove it from the overall whole. If you're an auteur, I can see how that might be offensive to your sensibility, despite the fact that obviously no harm was going to be done by showing people little clips of Sleeper. Well, actually, the way we sold that whole concept in was that not only would it do no harm, it would do some good. Because if you show a clip of Sleeper to somebody who's not seen Sleeper and they say, hey, that looks like a funny movie. And then they go rent it. In those days, renting videos was a thing yep. or, um, you know, otherwise. Yeah, I, I got into that once we lost HBO. Yeah, right. right. <laughs>
But, you know, so the whole thing was a, a great promotional uh, uh, plan that yeah. would have worked beautifully. I didn't I didn't understand that at the time. And, and I get that it's some of the programming did survive in that form. The stand up stuff. I don't know how much of half hour comedy hour was an MTV thing and how much of that was a, a comedy channel, Comedy Central I mean, thing. We, we did we did a show called Stand Up, Stand Up. And there was a half hour comedy hour. You know, ultimately, the two channels merged. So yes. we ended up with everybody's programming. So. Right. But the channel you envisioned and it makes perfect sense was essentially the comedy answer to MTV. MTV had helped sell albums by giving clips of music put to music videos that obviously that takes on a life of its own. As you're, I mean, presumably in an alternate universe, that's what would have happened with you. You would have basically invented YouTube 20 years earlier. Yeah, exactly right. And um, people have commented on that uh, recently. The thing is, it, it would have worked. However, as you saw... MTV moved away from that model. And then comedy, the way I pitched it was we'd start there and then we'd move into long form programming as well. Yeah. Because that's what we would do. The reason it was a good way to pitch it, it was inexpensive. Programming was inexpensive. And, you know, we did launch with Mystery Science Theater 3000. Mm -hmm. That was um, that was on the show. First thing on the on the uh, channel. First thing after we launched. And it was, you know, it was a quick hit. A cult hit, we called it, because there weren't many people who could see it at that point. Right. But it, it definitely got into the pop culture very quickly. Yeah, I love the stories of how these original Comedy Central, um, the, the shows and the talent all came together. Mystery Science Theater really fell in your lap. It seems like you almost, with all due respect to the creators, obviously, like willed it into existence. <laughs> yeah, it's a funny story. Um. The head writer of comedy, yes, we had a head writer in those days. His name was Eddie Gordetsky, crazy guy, uh, and still writing in Hollywood. He said, okay, guys, here's what we got to do. We need a show that's a watch us watch television show because that's what comedians do. They sit in front of the, the television and they make jokes and they tear the thing apart and it will be fun. And we all said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And we started working on the show and it must have been three days later. Some guy walks in and said, look what just came in in the mail. It's the show we were talking about. And he puts in a tape and it is Joel and two robots making fun of some movie. And we said, oh, my gosh, now we don't have to produce it because they're producing it. We went out, made a deal the next day. Uh, they were in Minneapolis. They were in Minneapolis. And I thought I had heard at the time that I knew that they were from there. I guess I either heard or assumed that it had been airing locally. What were they going to do with that concept if your channel hadn't magically come to exist? Well, I think that's, you know, that's a very good question. And I think the fact that con comedy did exist, that the channel did exist um, and did attract things like offbeat shows, comedians that otherwise wouldn't have found a, a, a home. Um, I think that was a very important function of Comedy Channel and Comedy Central. I think it gave a home to Mystery Science Theater 3000. Dr. Katz. I mean, these are things that wouldn't have gone to know. Oh, goodness, no. And they, would, they probably wouldn't have gone anywhere else. That was one of the first things, even though the launch of comedy was hard. When Mystery Science Theater 3000 came in the door, I said, you know what? We're going to succeed because people are starting to find us yeah. with great ideas. Yeah, that's sort of the proof of concept that you, yep. you, you have yep. a, an, an untapped vein of, of entertainment that, uh, that obviously can fill 24 hours of a channel. I, I love... The, it seems like you had a sort of tortured relationship with Bill Maher, ultimately. <laughs> I think a lot of people will attest to also having a tortured relationship. With I can Bill see Maher. that. Um, <laughs> um, he 
pitched us the show. He pitched me and uh, my partner at the time. The show, Politically Incorrect. And he said, I want to do a talk show where people actually talk. At the time, he was an unknown comic. And we jumped at the chance because it sounded great. And we didn't have anything like it. And we wanted something. And I thought, yeah, this guy seems like a nice enough guy. Almost immediately, he was hard to work with. And I didn't work with him that much. I was not on the production team. And as a matter of fact, I was in, in, in charge of marketing at that point and did a marketing campaign that I soon found out Bill hated, and he hated it so much, he called me up and told me that he uh, was going to get me fired because of the campaign for his show. Uh, so that was a moment I will uh, never forget. Not that I was so scared I would get fired, but getting yelled at by the talent is a place I hadn't quite been yet uh, in that way. You know, I was really struck by, you mentioned that Bill Maher was was unknown. And he essentially was, as somebody who'd spent a lot of time at Blockbuster, I think I'd already seen him in Cannibal Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death, which was his- He did that. That was, yes, his, that was his calling card as a leading man before Politically Incorrect. But I would assume that people like that who had this new outlet to have TV shows and were now at least in a couple million households across America would do what they could to hold on to those jobs. And yet you portray both him and Jon Stewart as being totally willing to leave the job on principle. That just sort of struck me. Um, I guess that is kind of striking. Uh, John Stewart's a completely different story. Yes, let's stick is. with right. let's stick with Bill for a second. Um, you know, Bill, as you can imagine, is very principled, mm -hmm. like uh, a lot of comedians and a lot of talent generally. Uh, and and it's it's important to them what's going on with their show, how it's being promoted, when it's being scheduled. I mean, all the things that talent doesn't always have a chance to weigh in on. Certainly in the early days of comedy, they had a chance to weigh in on. They could call me because they knew who I was. You know, I think that's probably less the case at some other networks, especially now. Um, so yeah, Bill took it all very seriously. He did leave Comedy Central, as you know, yes, uh, and, and went to HBO. And he didn't leave so much as was tempted away. One of the things about Comedy Central was that, especially in the early days, we were owned by HBO and MTV. And whenever we had somebody who was good, some a good piece of talent, sure enough, somebody knocked on the door from one of the parent companies and said, hey, you know, we can do a show with you over here and pay you twice as much and give you 10 times the audience and all the other stuff. So, you know, as, as you can imagine, it was hard to hold on to people uh, in those days. Jon Stewart similarly left uh, Comedy uh, to go work for MTV originally for a couple of years. And then he came back. So I love the stories of, um, you know, if, if, if this is a movie, it's the, the 30 minute to the 45 minute mark where you're up and running and you're in that sweet spot where you're big enough that people are paying attention, but you're small enough that you still have total autonomy nearly to do whatever you want. You run whatever full page ad you want to run in the New York times, regardless of whether or not it was the wisest move in retrospect. You want to black out for an hour and a half because Johnny Carson's doing his final show. You do that. Dennis Miller wasn't going to be peeing in a garbage can on network television at that time. It must've been <laughs> just a lot of fun to be making a channel and throwing it right up on the air as, as you wished it to be. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And I think I, I think the most fun was working with people who were funny all the time. Even when things weren't going well, we were laughing a lot, uh, especially at that point. You know, in the very early days of comedy, man, I talk about losing my sense of humor. When we first start, launched 
uh, comedy channel, it wasn't, you know, we weren't having a good time. We were struggling to survive. But, you know, by the time I get into it at, at uh, Comedy Central and we were not only surviving, but thriving, the things we came up with, and I say we, meaning not me, all the other guys who worked there, you know, came up with all the time, great stunts, great ideas, great shows, great promotion. Just, just, it was, it was fabulous to watch. And I'm in touch with a lot of those people now, you know, and they say the same thing, man, that was my favorite job because we got to do so many, so many fun, fun things. It's an absolutely enviable run that you had there. You make the channel and then you subsequently make the website when that's still a new frontier in entertainment. You subsequently make a, the first Comedy Central book and, and, and that yes. has some success. It's just, it's, it's amazing where that all took you, but through the whole thing, this is so unusual. I can't recall having read a story of someone in your position where you are the creator of this. Nobody disputes that. Of course you had a lot of help, but this was your baby from the beginning and then you're essentially running it. But through it all, you are a cog in this corporation who's ultimately disposable to them and through a series of acquisitions and what have you, that's that's what happened. It's it's just an unusual place, I feel like, in, in the pop culture stuff that I've read for a creator to sort of end up. Uh, you mean end up being fired? Yeah. From from the from the entity that he created? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's um I guess it was something I should have expected, uh, although I didn't. You know, I really thought that, okay. I've done a lot for this channel. I put it, you know, I came up with the idea. I stuck through it in the early days. I put the the merger together between an MTV comedy network and and uh, HBO's, which was as hard as launching it to get those two cultures to work together. And then all of a sudden it was like, okay, Art, you know, thanks for everything. You've been great, you know, and we really appreciate it, but your fingerprints are all over this thing and we got to start, you know, we got to do some new things. So we're letting you go. And I was, I was devastated as you can, as you can imagine. Of course. What would, ha I mean, this is a crazy question. What would happen if you showed up there today? Is there any sense at Comedy Central that you are a guy who means quite a bit in the story of that channel? You know, today might be a different story, uh, literally today, because they just went through another management change. I see. And the, yeah. Uh, but I guess about six or seven years ago, there was a guy in development there. Um, and he said to me, I, I didn't know him before I, I met him on this occasion. He said, yeah, I'm in development at, at, uh, at Comedy Central. He says, they should have a statue of you out in front. Right. You know, they should have a big statue of you. You put this place together. It's unbelievable what it's become. But, you know, people don't know what you did. And I was very touched by that. I was very touched by that. So I think he may have been the only guy who recognized, recognized that. Um, but it, it, it was nice to hear. There's a really nice moment in the book where you launch the channel. And I can only imagine how exciting it is to be in the room when the screen goes from black to all of a sudden we have this TV channel. And somebody you're talking to, I forget who, says, it's this thing. You launch a channel and it's on forever. And I was thinking about how it's it's true. It's not what he was saying wasn't true at the time. It could have only lasted for six months or 18 months or four years. God knows how many cable channels have fallen by the wayside, particularly from the early days, but it is on forever. Comedy Central is still here. It's still going strong. It's not going anywhere. Do you still watch Comedy Central? And was there any period of time where you did not or could not watch Comedy Central? Uh, 
I still watch Comedy Central very occasionally. Yeah. Um, it's different, of course. Uh, uh, not for any emotional reasons, just because of what I'm doing lately and I'm watching less television generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am extremely proud of the fact that it's still here after 30 years. Of course. I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, and yes, when that, that person who mentioned that was actually Michael Fuchs, the same guy I had pitched, who was chairman of, of HBO. And, and he expected it to go on forever. And he said, when you launch this thing, it's there for the rest of your life. And what we learned immediately was how hard it was to program 24 hours a day of a channel for the rest of your life. Yeah, you're like the guy on the on the railroad that has to keep feeding the the coal or, or the wood in. It just it's a, it, exactly. it constantly devours it, and you need to keep uh, refreshing that. Exactly. I mean, you made a, a comment early uh, in this show saying, you know, there's lots of comedy around. Well, yes and no. You know, I mean, there, there may be lots of comedy around, but you have to scramble to get it, uh, and it takes time and it takes money, and uh, and there was certainly less less around then than there there is now. That's right. Well, I think that's because you were coming in at just the right time, which was a little bit early. If you'd been late, somebody else would have got there. But, you know, I I think back so fondly on summers in particular when I wasn't in school and I should have been doing something productive with my time, but instead I was just glued to the couch and absolutely fabulous. I don't know how else I would have seen that. Kids in the Hall, as I've already mentioned, had HBO taken away from me. I wasn't, I'd wasn't. i seen clips, but I wasn't going to get a whole lot of that. The idea of watching an entire Saturday Night Live episode with the music and everything in the middle of a, of a weekday, we still can't do that. They still can't work out the rights for somebody to stream. They've got these weird chopped up 20-minute versions of them. Nobody, NBC has a streaming service, and they don't have Saturday Night Live in its entirety. The whole thing, you know, Pendulette's voiceovers. I don't know if anybody but me remembers those weird poem vignettes that Jeff Ross would do. I remember one time he's reading a poem, and he's got kiss boots on, and he stomps his foot, and there's pyrotechnics for absolutely yeah, yeah. no reason. Listen, he's one of the funniest guys in the world, I yeah. think. I mean, he, even before he was on TV, he made me laugh just walking down the halls. Yeah. Very funny guy. Yeah, it's great. And I know that you segued from that eventually into Court TV. What are you up to now? Writing. I, you know, I, I went to Court TV. I was president of Court TV. That was, that was another place where we had to make a channel. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people say, how did you go from comedy to court? Well, I did. And it was, uh, court was very interesting. And it was, a, it was a challenge to put the channel together. And we did became very successful and then it got bought. And when it got bought, they said, okay, all right, thanks very much. We don't need you anymore. And I left that channel. And then it was like, okay, am I gonna go work in another channel and have that taken out from under me? Right. I decided not to. And I did some consulting for Panasonic, worked on 3D television, which was a fascinating undertaking. Actually, we did a channel for that. Um, and I did a lot of other things, um, but now I am out of the business and I am writing and I really enjoy writing comedy, constant comedy, uh, my memoir came out of that the, the last three years, and I'm hoping to write more fiction now. That's great. Well, uh, I'm going to let you go. I'll, I'll remind everybody about your book, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. Anybody who's interested in uh, media, in comedy, it, it really was a, a really entertaining read. I appreciate that. And listen, if anybody, you know, obviously it's available at Amazon. If anybody mm-hmm. wants to know more about me or my book, they can go to artbellwriter.com. Terrific. Thank you so much, Art. Thank you.